Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. I love researching old murders like this one and reading newspapers from the 1920s. This story is particularly interesting. Not because someone confessed to murder, but because a man escaped being hung for his crime. Not once, not twice, but three times. Keep listening for a lot of twists and turns that lead to a surprise ending. Russell T. Scott was born in Maydock, Ontario, in Canada, and moved with his family to the United States when he was a child. His father, Thomas, was a barber who invented a hair tonic called Booster Hair Restorer. At a young age, Russell traveled the country with his parents and watched them sell the tonic. His father promoted its ingredients, while his mother, with beautiful hair down to her waist, provided the proof people needed to part with their hard-earned money. At age nine, Russell returned to Canada in a circus sideshow. As reported by the Weekly Advance, the real star of the show were the snakes that had been tamed. Russell then ventured on to the vaudeville stage, and he traveled across the U.S. performing. That's where he met his first wife. Russell noticed many people around him were making much more money than he was. While working in New York, he spotted an ad for a bond salesman. For years, he had seen his father give a sales pitch and decided to give it a try. Russell was unnatural and was very persuasive at selling. He had the ability to convince anyone to buy what he was selling and became very successful. He was soon offered a job at the prestigious firm of H.B. Green in Boston. Success came easy. Some days he earned six to $7,000. That was a lot of money in the early 20s. Today, that would be about $100,000. He wore expensive suits, stayed in the best hotels, and rode in luxury cars. But that level of success in his mid-twenties came at a price. The pressure was high, and the pace frighteningly fast. Soon, he wasn't sleeping at night. A visit to the doctor, and he was prescribed a sleeping aid cocaine. Russell was then lured back to Canada and set up numerous agencies across the country selling bonds. He made almost $200,000 in commissions and attempted to take over the company. However, his attempt failed. But Russell wasn't deterred. Not even 30 years old, 
he was personally worth about $2 million, which today would be about $30 million. He went back to the U.S. for his next business venture. In Detroit, he put together a business deal to build a bridge between the city and Windsor and Ontario. He had the backing of many prominent people in the financial world and raised $2 million for the project. But Russell's company failed to pony up the $2 million for the contract, and it was awarded to the United States Steel Corporation. In 1919, he formed the Russell T. Scott Company Limited, a financial firm that grew to 37 offices within three years in major cities throughout the U.S., Canada, and Britain, and employed 800 salespeople. His sales pitch was simple, targeted at the average person. He convinced them to borrow money from the bank at a low interest rate, then invested in his company, who would get them a high rate of return. Russell built his company up to be worth $10 million. By now, Russell had moved on to his second wife, blue-eyed Catherine, and the couple had three children. He supported his family in great style, along with his parents and younger brother and sister in college. Robert, another one of his siblings, was working in the business with Russell. He had served in the Navy during the war and was proud of his older brother's success. With success came a wandering eye for Russell. He liked fine wine and women. He began to date Dorothy Newberg. To hide their affair, he put an ad in the newspaper for a traveling saleswoman and pretended to hire her so that he could take her on business trips. In a letter dated March 1921, he wrote, Sweetheart, I find that I am unable to go to Montreal for about four weeks. However, dear, I want you to spend the week with me in Toronto. Leave Boston Thursday afternoon, about 3, and arrive Toronto, 9 a.m. We'll meet you at the station. Much love, signed Russell with a bunch of X's. Now Dorothy had no idea Russell was married and that he had his eye on more than just her and his wife. In January 1923, Russell went before the court in Toronto for seducing a young telephone operator. The jury found him not guilty, but before letting him go, the judge ordered him to pay the victim $2,500 and told him, you are a menace to the safety of young women and a disgrace to your wife and children. After a three-year courtship and expecting marriage, Dorothy was outraged. She had no idea he was married, let alone courting another woman. The Daily Sun-Times reported that she traveled to Toronto and filed a lawsuit against Russell for seduction under promise of marriage, and she asked for $50,000 in compensation. The judge awarded her $10,000. While Russell was busy defending himself in court, 
he had left his brother Robert to run his company. When he returned, he discovered that Robert had misappropriated funds that belonged to his investors. Russell's philandering made public in the courts was hurting his business, and now his investors were losing money, and he knew authorities would begin investigating. To protect his brother, Russell shut down his company and moved to Montreal. There, he started a new company, but his reputation followed him, and the Quebec government refused to issue his company a license. Russell was broke. He didn't pay either women the court-ordered cash. He fled back to the U.S., landing in Chicago. He got a job selling grape juice. But the salesman in him was always looking to spin an extra buck, and he came up with the idea to sell expensive juice but deliver a cheaper one to the customers. In January 1924, Russell was charged with obtaining money under false pretenses. He was arrested in a gingy hotel. But luckily for Russell, he managed to get off scot-free. Now a man once worth millions was penniless. Broken destitute, he turned to his younger brother Robert. At 23, Robert had found his passion. He had turned to crime. Breaking into homes and businesses, he stole their belongings or robbed people at gunpoint. The New York Daily News reported that the brothers teamed up and broke into a mansion in Chicago and stole jewelry worth $1,000. This success fueled them to commit 42 robberies in a two-week crime spree. Then on April 3, 1924, the brothers entered Edison Drugstore, located just two blocks from the city hall in Chicago. They didn't wait until nightfall, but instead, while the store was open and bustling with customers, they barged in with guns. They herded the customers and the owner to the basement, while keeping one lone staff member upstairs. After looting the cash register of $500, they ordered Joseph Moore to open the safe. Joseph was working at the store to pay for college and refused. He and the brothers got into a scuffle. The men and women huddled down in the basement heard three shots ring out. Then a thud as Joseph hit the floor, dead at 20. The brothers fled the scene before police arrived. But the fallen financial wizard had left his overcoat behind. Inside one of the pockets, police found a key to the Brevort Hotel. Detectives were quick to find out which door fit that key. The room was empty, and detectives were about to leave when they spotted a phone number scrawled on the wall in pencil. They traced the number to an apartment nearby. 
The phone number belonged to a man named Brooks Bullard. His sister Helen was Russell's new fiancée. But wait, he was still a married man. The day after the murder, police arrived at the apartment to find it empty. So they sat and waited. It wasn't long before Russell and Helen walked up to the door. When Russell put the key in the lock, he was greeted by officers with a gun drawn and pointed at him. It turned out that the couple had planned to go to Canada that night and elope. Instead, Helen had to scramble to prove to authorities that she knew nothing about Russell's business dealings or the robberies. Russell admitted to the robbery, but claimed it was his brother Robert who had pulled the trigger. But Robert was on the run, and without anyone to dispute or corroborate his story, Russell was charged with being accessory to the murder. Three months after Joseph's murder, Russell went on trial. His father testified on his son's behalf, but it didn't deter the prosecution. As a Windsor Star reported, the assistant prosecutor stated, if there ever was a case that demanded hanging, it is this one. Russell's lawyer advised him to plead guilty, thinking that he would get life in prison. Russell took his lawyer's advice, but it didn't go as planned. Being that there were no mitigating circumstances, the judge sentenced him to death by hanging. His lawyer cried out to the judge and begged him not to send his innocent client to the gallows. The judge permitted Russell to withdraw his guilty plea and change it to not guilty. Russell would get a new trial. In February 1925, he was retried and again found guilty. His date with the hangman's news was April 17th. Russell's lawyer filed an appeal. It was a day before his hanging and workmen were busy building the gallows. When Len Small, the governor of Illinois, stepped in and granted Russell a three-month extension while his case was being appealed. Russell had escaped the hangman's noose a second time. His father raised money to support his son's appeal, and those opposed to capital punishment held protests and organized petitions. Even his wife Catherine did her part. In a Detroit theater, she took to the stage, climbed inside a glass cage, and went on a hunger strike. When the appeal failed, Russell had another date with the gallows. In July, just as he was being readied, the governor received a telegram stating, I will be in to surrender myself. I am the man who shot Joseph. The governor granted Russell a stay of one week. But Robert did not turn himself in to save his brother. Russell was scheduled to hang on July 24th. 
As the gallows were being erected, a well-known Chicago lawyer named William Stewart stepped in just hours before Russell would walk up those steps. His new lawyer claimed that Russell was insane, a result of the stress of living on death row. Now, Russell disputed this. He was very much sane, but to save his life, he went along with it. Russell was sent to an asylum for the criminally insane in Chester, Illinois. Five months later, in January 1926, Robert's brother was discovered sitting in a cell in San Quentin Prison in California. He was transferred to Chicago to stand trial for Joseph's murder. The following year, Russell was examined and determined to be sane and returned to death row. His date with the executioner was set for October 13, 1927. Then, in a surprising twist, his brother Robert confessed to the murder and pled guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison. It's rather ironic that Robert received a life sentence, and Russell, who claimed he didn't murder anyone, was sentenced to die. For three and a half years, Russell had been through three trials, a sanity hearing, and had four dates with the gallows. Russell's lawyer filed an appeal just days before he was to be hung. The Supreme Court agreed to review his case, but it wasn't soon enough. On October 8, 1927, Russell decided to take his fate into his own hands. Just after 10 p.m., he removed the belt from his pants and hung it over the bars of his cell door. Standing on the metal bed frame, he let his feet slip off and felt the belt tighten around his neck. Days later, he was laid to rest in a plain pine box in his hometown of Windsor, Ontario. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Tony Henthorne. She was excited to find love on a dating site, but Harold had failed to mention how his first wife had really died. When he suggested a hike on their anniversary, she had no idea that only one of them would walk out alive. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be 
Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.